0: Welcome to this week's Lawn Sport podcast. In this podcast, Lawn Sport editorial board member and CAS arbitrator Jeff Benz speaks to Lawn Sport CEO Sean Cottrell about the issues and policies that are currently shaping the world of anti-doping. Having served as an arbitrator for multiple international sporting events and as former general counsel for the U.S. Olympic Committee, Jeff Benz provides us with an arbitrator's perspective on the governance of anti-doping matters, the newly implemented CAS anti-doping division at the Rio Games, and the need for anti-doping education, both for athletes and practitioners, among other topics. I hope you enjoy the show.
1: So I'm here at the chambers of 4 News Square with uh, a good friend and Lawrence Sport Editorial Board member and a prestigious cast arbitrator, Mr. Jeffrey Benz. Jeff, uh, how are you today? I'm doing well on this Rainy day in London. <laughs> it should be said that Jeff uh, normally resides, or often resides, in, in L.A. Um, Jeff, you've been involved in some of the highest profile anti doping cases over the last 12 months, including that of uh, Russia and the Russian Olympic Committee and the, uh, the athletes who brought their case before the Rio Games. And recently, the Sharapova case... There's been a lot of coverage, and it seems there will be continue to be a lot of coverage around the structures in anti-doping. When you look back over the last 12 months, what do you think about what, what has gone on, on the, in a broader scale, and where do you see the future of, the sort of anti-doping going?
0: Well, the system has definitely been tested. Uh, over. The, if you look at what's gone on over the last 12 months, you see that flaws in the anti-doping uh, regulatory scheme have come out with surprise. Russia's doing all of this activity that no one seems to have paid much attention to or knew about. Um, you have at the same time tension between the anti-doping agencies and the Olympic family over what their respective roles are. And those are that area has created some conflict. Uh, and then you have um, a a possible new future coming out of the IOC conference this past weekend that lays out some framework for the parties, hopefully, to move ahead together. Uh, I think that um, we had, as CAS arbitrators, I think we had an interesting 12 months. Um, The cases that came before us um, tested the limits of the World Anti-Doping Code, they tested the application of basic principles of association law. So all of these sports federations are run as associations of members, and does a federation have the ability to sanction their members for bad conduct? And are they able to do that even when it has an effect on athlete uh, participation? And so I think you see from the result of the pre-Rio case that, yes, uh, we found that the right of association is paramount and important and that may have incidental effects on athlete participation, but that's the core of, the, of this endeavor of sport is that you have international federations based on member federations and somehow that whole system has to stay held together, uh, glued together by everybody in it doing the same thing and following the same set of rules and if they don't, there should be penalties. Um, and so I don't know if we'll ever see something like this again, but um, the, the situation in Russia really took this to an extreme test of the association issues, and so you had athletes that were adversely affected because their associations did not um, conduct themselves in accordance with generally accepted principles uh, of, of good conduct in the Olympic family. They were engaged in doping activities that crossed the boundaries of what anyone heretofore expected or really had ever done. And so um, you have in that that sort of pressure cooker environment, um, you get into the Olympic Games format, and the IOC in the intervening days had made a decision about how it was going to, as the event organizer, allow uh, participants from Russia to compete in the Games with a multi-part test. And in the Games environment, you had the ad hoc division, which had to make decisions on the spot in a very quick way about, I would call, the effects of the IOC decision. So the track and field athletes were, for the most part, taken care of by the decision prior to the games, and then you had a bunch of other international sports people um, or athletes in, in federations that had to address Russian participation in light of the structure that was set out by the IOC. And some of that structure set up by the IOC was was found to have been valid, and other parts of it were found to have been invalid. Um, and that was sort of the that's sort of the overall summary of at least half of the cases that came out of the ad hoc division at the games. Um, putting against that backdrop, the fact that about two to th- three months before the start of the Rio games, the CAS created a special ad hoc doping division. Uh, in addition to the regular ad hoc division at the game. So it was a separate um, dispute resolution tribunal whose decisions could be appealed to the full cast. And uh, that, I think, ha- was a precursor to what we're going to see coming out of this past weekend stuff. But I can talk more about that.
1: Yeah, so on that point then, what, what, what do you think about that? Because that looks, yeah. for, from the from the games, it looked like something that was, it was successful seeing... You know, generally seem to get positive coverage, at least in the sports law community. Um, you know, what's your view on it? Well, so I, the IOC uh,
0: historically had taken on the role of disciplining athletes during the time of the Games, and the ad hoc doping division at the Games essentially stepped into the shoes of the disciplinary commission, the old days of the disciplinary commissions of the IOC. And so there were no more disciplinary commissions. All of the, the doping positives were referred to the ad hoc anti-doping division by a committee of the IOC, and then the folks on that division would make, they had the power to make the same decision that the old disciplinary commissions would make of the IOC. And those generally dealt with how to deal with um, results at the games, how to deal with accreditation, whether you keep it or whether you lose it, um, which has an effect on an athlete's ability to stay in the Olympic Village, And maybe a few other smaller ancillary things. But those are the big ones. Um, And then those decisions are referred to, have been referred to the international federations to address on the merits. So the ad hoc doping division at the site of the games, I don't believe, took up any case on the merits um, aside from addressing what is presented by the IOC medical group. Um, And it's, I, I don't believe any were appealed. To the um, full ad hoc panel, but these cases I think are still going on. Um, they carry over a bit because of uh, uh, the test results and the timing of the test results. In any event, um, the I, the ad hoc division, the anti doping ad hoc division of the games, um, I think provides a model for what's likely um, to come out of uh, the IOC meetings and the kind of WADA and IOC. Road forward that happened just this past weekend and I'm not an official cast person and I don't speak on behalf of anybody except myself but um, looking at it as an observer uh, I think that what we will probably see is a cast uh, anti-doping related um, group or division within the cast to manage all of these cases now that it appears that uh, what and the IOC have suggested need to be taken away from um, the IFs and go to CAS to determine in the first instance. I think all of this remains to be written. I think all of it remains to be seen in its implementation. I don't think from the public statements that have been made that there's a lot of specificity right now around what CAS's involvement will be in um, this process precisely. But as an arbitrator, I think it's... uh, great news because it gives more opportunity to CAS arbitrators to gain more experience and get more cases and um, hopefully broaden the pool of knowledgeable uh, and experienced arbitrators um, within the caste system and at the same time provide a service to uh, the Olympic family um, by moving uh, into one centralized area
1: the costs of adjudicating doping disputes. So in theory you think there could be cost savings because all the international federations and all the money that's currently being spent will just be centered, funded by the IOC it looks like, um, in, this, in this body. But one of the things that I wanted to touch on, because one of the consistent problems it seems or obstacles in, in doping cases that go to CAS and you know, just reading all the commentary and look at what happened in Essendon and uh, Sharapova and so forth it seems to be an increasingly more technical and if you speak to Wardo and you know the privileged listeners, balance between the scientific validity and legal certainty is, is a, cons- a consistent problem for them to address because you know lawyers need everything to be very precise but scientifically sometimes the names being used may not be as precise and therefore might be confusing. With that being said. How much of an obstacle, how increasing a trend do you think it is then that the, the arbitrators who need to sit on anti-doping panels need to have that expert knowledge of the anti-doping system? Because you were a general counsel before for the um, US Olympic Committee, so you had that specific knowledge before you became an arbitrator.
0: I mean, I, I don't think it's hard to pick up uh, over time with experience, but um, one of the benefits of having a closed list like the CAS... And having a specialized tribunal that deals with this thing we call sport together uh, is that you can build that knowledge in one place and avoid sort of the wild uh, swings of jurisprudence that might occur if you were out in the in the legal systems around the world and not harmonized so i I think that um, that it's it's something that where the experience can can be built up. I think that um, populating the the cast panels. Uh, with knowledgeable and experienced arbitrators is important, and at the same time, um, uh, ensuring that the pool of arbitrators gets sufficient training and education in this area is also important, and I think the CAS is taking active steps um, with increasing the number of training sessions and arbitrator training opportunities and experience um, gaining sessions like ad hoc divisions and the like. I think that you'll see that Um, Arbitrators are gaining that. The advent of the ad hoc division had been limited to the Olympic Games format for a long period of time, Uh, and now you see CAS ad hoc divisions tied into the FIFA World Cup, the Euro, um, the Commonwealth Games, uh, and I just returned from the Asian Beach Games for the second time serving on the ad hoc division of the Asian Beach Games. Very difficult, arduous gig. Um, but uh, what that means is that you have more opportunities for arbitrators to um, to gain more experience in the ad hoc context. So
1: at the beach game, did you um, have to hear any appeals? Or?
0: We, uh, regrettably, we had no cases. Um, but we did hold, for example, um, internal training sessions. Um, we we're able to interact with iCast members and find out about the future of Cast. Matthew Reeb was there. Um, uh, other Cast staff were there, and you know, there's nothing better than getting to know your peers a little more in the environment of of uh, everybody being transported to a different place and. Yeah. And, uh, you're, you're uh, and taken and, out from
1: your daily routines, and, yeah, and
0: you know, learning you know, from everything. each other in this sort of environment.
1: So, what you touched on education and how important it is for education for arbitrators, particularly in this space. So, there's two other areas that would warrant um, education. You think I don't know it takes place, but one would be the advocates who are pre- representing, and the solicitors around the world um, who are representing or counsel, depending where you're from, um, who are representing the athletes in terms of renovations. And in your experience, do you think, is there a, a a divergence in the level of expertise between those who really know what they're doing and those who don't, in the, particularly in anti-doping? And do you think there's, there's there's more need for training in this for them?
0: I think, there, I think there can be a divergence. In the old days, when I say that, was back when I was involved in the formation of USADA and... Even before that, when I was an athlete rep within the USOC structure, the only people that could gain experience through repeat business were the institutional lawyers, so the people that represented the federations. And so you had a in those days, you had this very highly educated set and highly experienced set of lawyers on one side, and you had, on the other side, people that weren't repeat business that would show up, one lawyer would show up for one case, and that would be their only intersection with the movement. Things have changed dramatically now, um, I think, because you now we've now developed in the system a professional cadre of uh, lawyers who represent athletes in the system, and they regularly appear. Um, they are able to engage in legal argument or other debate or discussion at the same level as uh, the institution lawyers, sometimes even depending on the, the individual lawyers at a more sophisticated level, um, and... Uh, in that regard, the playing field has been made a little more level. But there are still you know, people that um, that don't have access to that cadre of lawyers, be it for cost, mm. geographic reasons, not knowing um, who they are or whatever reason. And, and the lawyers that they get are sometimes a mixed bag. And it doesn't really matter whether you're with a small firm lawyer or a solo practice lawyer, or you're with a big firm lawyer. I've seen plenty of People appear in front of me that fit into any of those that have often the same relative lack of experience in this particular field, and some of them have had very high levels of experience, and it doesn't really depend on what they're affiliated with. But I think that um, there is a need for um, the newcomers to the field, people that want to represent athletes in this field or want to represent institutions and want to take on a CAST case, for example, for the first time to be conscious of the fact that this is arbitration. This is not litigation light. This is not um, uh, a Hollywood uh, trial situation. This is an arbitration. And the promise and premise of arbitration is it's less formal, but there's also a culture around it about how you conduct yourself in the proceedings that's different than you would do in front of, for example, in common law jurisdictions, a jury and with a judge and the like. Instead, you have three arbitrators, or one, depending on your case, who are very sophisticated consumers of legal arguments and story. At the end of the day, I, I basically characterize what I do is evaluate story. There is a story that is told by each side about the facts of the case, and as an arbitrator, you have to distill that and come to what you think is the right version or the right outcome with respect to that story. And so, being able to convey that um, is a nuanced skill. It is something that requires um, not a sledgehammer, but something more refined uh, to get the job done. And I see in domestic arbitrations in the U.S. in sport or in commercial, lots of lawyers that don't get that. And occasionally, I still see that happen in front of CAS. Um,
1: and it- surely, this is like. A- like from, from being a lawyer 101. It's <laughs> like, you think know your audience, surely. Know your audience is
0: important, but I'll, for example, I, I think there's a lot of American lawyers who don't appreciate the civil law tradition and what it means. And I have a story, <laughs> if anyone's listening to this that was on the case, they will appreciate this. I think of myself as a relatively sophisticated person when it comes to thinking about common law and civil law differences. I've studied it. I've tried to work my way through it. I'm a participant in processes with civil law lawyers in front of me and civil law trained arbitrators beside me. And I blurted out in a case, um, surely German law must recognize equity. And the entire room was full of civil law lawyers. I was the only common law lawyer in the room. And they all looked at me and said, what are you talking about? (laughs) My response was, I said something really stupid didn't I, and so it <laughs> <laughs> caused a laugh in the room, but you know something as simple as understanding that in the civil law tradition they don't have the same concept as equity, although they have principles legal principles like it but when we say equity as common law lawyers, we understand what that means that's mm-hmm. something extra statutory you know something that allows for judicial ease of judicial remedies and and fairness and it doesn't have the same Uh, meaning necessarily in the civil law and so that's a nuanced that's a fairly nuanced aspect of it but if you want to come barreling in as an American trial lawyer um, and I'll just pick on New York because I'm admitted there among other states but if you want to come in as a New York American stereotypical trial lawyer and you want to cross-examine witnesses harshly and make a bunch of objections and um, otherwise um, engage in sort of take no prisoners litigation tactics, you are not going to be playing to your audience very well in, in CAS or honestly in any arbitration setting. Um, and so you see, you can you see, see the effects of that in the outcome because you got into, you really have to know your audience. And I think it behooves the civil law lawyers to learn about how the common law lawyers do things because you're going to get common law lawyers on your panel. And I think it behooves the, the common law lawyers to be sensitive to the differences with civil law practice and respect them. They are are different approaches to the same problem, which is how do you manage a procedure?
1: And I think that's that's something that you know essential to um, international arbitration, particularly in sport. I and mean, as you said earlier, I think the word you use is harmonised rules, or ha- harmonised access to justice and jurisprudence, or effectively. If one of those things that I think is often overlooked in the sports sphere sometimes is how difficult that is to try and get some consistency with all the different cultures, all the different legal systems around the world and trying to have these narrowed down. Someone said to me, um, you know, uh, my latest thing at the moment is criticising the um, inaccessibility of the FIFA statutes and the Code of Governance, Code of Ethics and so forth. And they said part of that problem is probably the fact that you've got so many international lawyers feeding into it and you know that these subtle, subtle differences in meaning which mean you end up with this quite convoluted um, regulatory structure
0: yeah I think that's I think there's um something to that so on the training front I will say that um, since probably the Sydney Olympic Games the cast is engaged in on-site training around the Olympic Games with the local bar I did one of those trainings I conducted one of those trainings prior to the Salt Lake City Games as the general counsel of the USOC, because we felt it was important that athletes have some some access to justice that's, you know, meaningful in light, in particular in light of the fact that the cases that arise at the Olympic Games are on such a short fuse, um, and having a cadre of people on call and ready to do something is important. And they did an excellent job with the New South Wales Bar Association in Sydney, I think we did a good job with that in Salt Lake City. Um, I actually, in those days, was able to appear as a lawyer in cases before the CAS, even though I was a CAS arbitrator. That's since changed, but uh, I appeared on a case uh, in which I was opposite one of the lawyers I had trained, um, which makes for fun and interesting dynamics in the room. Um, But this has continued on in all the other places that that I think that the the games have been held, and I know um, there was one a similar training and identification of lawyers that was conducted in Rio prior to the to the games and i think you know the more you do that the more we demystify the lex sportiva and the procedural process around how these things get get resolved and i think the greater interest there is in cas around the world uh, only enhances its ability to be responsive to its clients, essentially, the parties before it, and otherwise develops um, sport law as a significant and meaningful area of law. Back when I started as a lawyer, um, this was you know treated as all cute and interesting and fun, but there wasn't a lot of developed, published, accessible law available to you as a practitioner. So most of the sports-related stuff you would do would either be based on contracts that were written in the commercial context between parties to a sporting endeavor, or some notion of tradition, um, industry practice, common usage, um, that kind of thing that would be not necessarily written down, but after you had reached some level of experience, you would know what it was. The problem with that system is that newcomers have a very difficult time of it because they are not indoctrinated in uh, the system. And so it's now... The old,
1: it's their boys network.
0: Yeah, it, it seems yeah. like that. It's not intentionally it's that, not- but it just... Had developed that way. So now with the advent of CAS um, since those days uh, and the publishing of its cases and the development of greater transparency in and, and
1: governing associations. resources like law and sport. Come on.
0: And <laughs> wonderful resources like law and sport and the content it provides. That's all being demystified and so it's, um, it, it's a much healthier environment than, um, than I originally grew up in in this area.
1: One final question for you. I interviewed, I think you know, him, because I think you do stuff with World Rugby, um, amongst others, but I interviewed Ben Rutherford from World Rugby the other day, and we are talking about the mandatory training for concussion uh, that World Rugby implement. I know that RFU do a similar thing, uh, or do almost a you know, very similar thing, uh, with officials, players, coaches, etc. And they also have a similar programme for integrity matters particularly around betting, match fixing, how to report etc what would you think or would you think it would be helpful if there was a mandatory online education programme for doping, for anti-doping that athletes have to go through and sit through in conjunction with, much like World Rugby with in person repeated training in person and relationship with an in-person, that you can see that an athlete has had to go through online uh, a minimum education program, and then it's recorded that that athlete has gone through that online. You can see if they've dropped off at a certain point if, or not, but you can also then raise certain, say for example, when uh, new substances are added to the prohibited list, that can be included within one of the modules of that online program. So,
0: <laughs> I have long been mystified by why in the Olympic family we don't treat athletes with the same professionalism, for example, that we treat employees of companies in the commercial context. So since the passage of the Sarbanes-Oxley statute in the United States, okay, that's a little too discreet, but basically that's the law that says that companies uh, that are traded have to be uh, transparent at some level, and it puts in place whistleblower protections and the like, but there is basically mandatory compliance and ethics training that employees have to do in commercial endeavors, Uh, there is, in the United States at least, mandatory, and actually here in England as well, mandatory or basically if you don't do it, you face a lot of legal risk kind of mandatory training around sexual harassment in the workplace and other workplace endeavors. And companies are out there that have developed this software capability. They, they develop interesting content. Employees are accustomed to do, having to do this once a year or once every other year uh, and go through it. And employers can track who's done it, who hasn't done it, um, and the like. And it's really not that, it, it's not that expensive to implement. I've implemented some of those systems at companies where I've been the general counsel. Um, and it, it really doesn't take a lot. The hardest part is creating the content. That you put into the system, but in a system like the World Anti-Doping System, there will be marginal changes on an annual basis to that, not you know whole, whole cloth revisions. Although you you know when the code gets amended every dozen years or half dozen years, then um, there might be um, some significant changes there. So I I don't know why this isn't done. Um, I think it would be a great service to be provided to the international federations and to athletes to have a centralized source provide that content to them or that service to them. Um, and I see the effects of this. So athletes uh, in doping cases that appear in front of me have a very wide range of experience with the anti-doping system. And some of the most senior people oftentimes have virtually no training. They've never been trained um, in any way. No, one's, no one from international federation in, in their particular sport has come to them and said, Here's what you do. Now, if you talk to the federations, they'll say, well, we have a whole program on our website. Here's a wallet card for you. Here's a flash drive with all the rules on it. But that, at some point, if the message of, of that content is not getting through, then it's time to find a different system, perhaps, that ensures that you know athletes avoid mistakes. The, the acts of intentional cheating... Um, putting aside, let's put aside the Russian cases, but let's just look at what the trend was before the Russian cases arose. The acts of intentional um, doping were few and far between in terms of what was found <laughs> in the in, in the cases or what made it made it to a cast Case what you ended, what you saw most of the time was just I'll, I'll just call it the the stupidity factor. You know, somebody didn't understand their obligations under the rules. And they didn't follow them, and they took a supplement that was contaminated. Or worse, there have been a number of cases where athletes have taken supplements that said on their label the exact contents that were in it and that they tested positive for. And to me, that suggests that um, when this is going on, even in elite sport at a high level, uh, that uh, something needs to be done to, to rectify. It seems so simple and so easy, and the yeah. benefits of it seem so great.
1: Well, you know, I can give you, you know, speaking to Ben... Again, at well, World Rugby, because it was a couple of weeks ago is why I referred to it so much, but you know, one of the things that he said is that we, they recognised the fact that, particularly at the World Cup, they had to go and see the players individually and they had to develop those relationships so that so the players trusted them. And I think they did a, you know, a stakeholder consultation for a number of years to make sure they got buy-in from those, which seemed so obvious. Um, but he did acknowledge that. Can be quite difficult in other sports. It can be much difficult, much more difficult to to, to implement.
0: Well, uh, I mean, the in, the personal interaction part is tough at the federation level. At the domestic level, it may not be as tough because those athletes are often gathered together for different national team related things. But something as simple as an online program can be done. You know, I mean, athletes have heavy travel schedules and training yeah. schedules, but you can pull up an hour-long education program that's mandatory and do it anywhere in the world you are pretty much these days uh, will undoubtedly have internet, um, and you can do it on your on your spare time. You can. These programs allow you to start them and stop them until you get through them, and so uh, why not do that? Athletes are now trained to deal with um, keeping their whereabouts information updated. They are all much more technically savvy than any of the administrators in the federations that they're involved in. Uh, and they would be able to, I think, easily adapt to this. But I, uh, my days as of being a policymaker in sport are long behind me, and I'm, I simply deal with uh, cases and disputes that come in front of me. So,
1: so on that take, point, it, take
0: that recommendation for <laughs> what it's worth, which is nothing.
1: <laughs> I think it's worth something, definitely. Um, well, I, I lied actually, I'm going to get asked one more final thing, and that's about intelligence gathering. So, for example, you know the guys at the British Horse Racing Authority, and obviously they've come and a review because of final appointment of, of, of people on the disability panels and, and potential conflicts of interest or perceived conflicts of interest. Um, what do you... Okay, just, let me just take one step back again. So the BHA, one thing they do is they, they monitor and they grade intelligence. It's from various sources, held in a system, it's anonymised, uh, or certain people can get access to it and it's graded on this I think it's five by five by five. Is that I always get this wrong so it's probably I'm slightly dyslexic, so that's probably why it's probably Well if it's all fives, it, it doesn't it, matter. Yeah, it, it, the might, the it, might be, it might be the twelve by twelve by twelve for real though. But the um, the point being is they say, right, you know, where's the evidence come from? How reliable how reliable is the source and you know, um, and then can it can it be verified or something along like those lines. Now, from a, from an arbitrator's perspective, with the evidence that's put forward in front of you, given the, some of the biggest doping scandals that have happened have all been in relation to non-analytical evidence, are you seeing more of this sort of intelligence gathering and do you think that's going to continue trend? So you've got on the one hand you've got these, as you would call it, you know, people who do something stupid, you know, they just don't follow the procedures properly, they did it, you know, they're artful, but yeah, you know, they they weren't that sophisticated, right? They weren't really trying to treat the system truly. They were just being lazy or, you know, and, and obviously then you've got, you know, on, a, on, a, on a degree scale, sliding up through those people who actually try to abuse the system and those people who are just masters like the lances of the world, who are just masters at uh, getting around the system and the only way you can catch them is by having this uh, non-analytical evidence. Are you seeing that becoming more prevalent in the cases that are brought to, to, to CAS? I mean, I think the
0: use of circumstantial or non-analytical evidence is increasing in doping cases, um, and it's pretty much the only way to to deal with um, match-fixing and corruption-related cases. Uh, I think that the panels are getting more experience dealing with that evidence and being able to evaluate it and evaluate its credibility. At the end of the day, again, to me, this is about evaluating story, and that involves determining which side of the other you believe in terms of what they say about uh, the evidence and whether you believe the evidence and what it says. And at the end of the day, the parties have burdens of proof that they have to meet. And in doping cases, those can move around and shift um, depending on the particular allegation that's made. So I think that that's an interesting point. I, I've struggled myself. I, I represent um, some companies in the integrity monitoring space, and or at least one integrity monitoring space, and I, I think the struggle there is how do they create a product that will be usable in either a court of law or in a for a prosecution or in a match fixing uh, or uh, corruption related um, uh, disciplinary proceeding before a sport sporting federation, and you know it's it's I think it's an evolving area, um, it, it's. If you look at the doping cases and where this has come up, um, you had gobs of um, objective sort of contemporaneous circumstantial evidence around the Balco cases. You had calendars with coding on them. You had reference, emails with references to certain things and when to take things and the like. Um, and that stuff becomes fairly easy to evaluate, I think, um, assuming that there's no dispute over the source. Uh, but when you get into other areas, you know, for example, in the um, in the let's take let's take for example the um, Armstrong case. We'll just take that as a, as an example. Um, there's a follow on case to that that I was involved in the Brunell decision, um, but I don't want to talk about that case because I was on it. But um, it's a published award people can read what we thought. But if you look at the um, at the situation with the Armstrong reason decision. Um, much of the circumstantial evidence there was testimony of other writers who were around Mr. Armstrong, and um, they were offered, for the same conduct, essentially, that Mr. Armstrong engaged in, they were offered a dramatically reduced sanction. So, does that call into question the credibility of their evidence? I don't know. Maybe it does. Um, In that particular, in the Bruniel case, this part's public, you had Floyd Landis testifying against um, Mr. Bruniel. And Who was the doctor or coach? Mr. Bruniel was the manager, manager. Of, the, of the postal service team. Yeah. And um, in that particular case, you had, among other witnesses, Floyd Landis testifying. And Mr. Landis had a, a, an admitted history of lying to tribunals about his experiences with doping. He had written a book that he was trying to profit from, and he had active litigation against Mr. Bruniel and Mr. Armstrong um, involving the f- his claim to what we call tam litigation in the United States. He, was, he sued on behalf of the U.S. government to recover the sponsorship fees of, uh, of the, uh, uh, that were paid by the U.S. Postal Service to the, the Armstrong team. Um, you can see in the decision, uh, the, the award that we wrote, we completely disregarded Mr. Landis' testimony because it just was hard to make sense of. It wasn't terribly credible. And so panels have to be sensitive to this. They have to be able to evaluate evidence and come to a decision about is this good quality evidence or not good quality evidence, and can we rely upon it in a way that's reasonable and yields a fair and just outcome.
1: Mm-hmm. I think we'll link to the case at the bottom of the podcast, so people can, can read it. But the it's a good point you make, and I think, you know, we published an article recently on this about about getting witness statements because there was uh, an issue of a cricket player who basically gave a, a, a public speech. Well, it wasn't as a private speech that was recorded and then put into the public domain for a brief period. But in which case, they said that I was brought in by a governing body to give uh, to get my. Um, perspective on and 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 evidence essentially on something that happened he said but i just thought he was an informal chat i didn't realize that it, could, it was going to be used in a disciplinary hearing and so then then it's gone up to the international federation they've called me back in to do another witness statement then i've realized that he said you know i'm not being so flippant with my answers and response and the two things don't match and that caused a problem you know for me and for the person concerned um, you know who was involved in the case, and he thought, and it made me think at the time, going, "Wow, this going This looks like this could be." So we've got one thing, which is how do you acquire, acquire the evidence, whether it's uh, data or and stuff like that, the rights that you have. And that's Anthony Huber talked about this in the podcast. Another is, um, you know, the quality of the data that you you do have and how it's presented. It's a super interesting area. I think you made some really interesting points. Thanks for sharing your experience. I think you're in a unique position in the sense that you are um, one of the leading arbitrators in the anti-doping arena with. You know, perspective from being a general counsel uh, in the Olympic movement as well, and obviously being a former athlete. Um, I think you make some really good points that need to be addressed, and hopefully, we'll see some of these um, points being addressed over the coming year.
0: Well, you're too kind in your statements about me. I'll leave. I'll leave you with a humor, more humorous anecdote though, in the Russia in the Russian NOC case versus the IAAF. Um, you can see this online. It's all public. I've never had this happen before in a case. And it makes me think now about, all right, do I have to put in all my procedural orders, including in commercial cases, that you can't um, use social media about the hearing because it might undermine the confidentiality of the proceedings. But in in that particular case, uh, Ms. Isenbaeva, the then reigning double gold medalist in women's pole vault, uh, had Instagrammed from inside the hearing, and you could actually see in the, in the rear corner of the photo, you could see two of the arbitrators, including yours truly. I'd like to think that the 10,000 likes that was received for that photo were largely due to the presence of the arbitrators, but something tells me that's not the case. But it's—it was one of the strangest things um, I've ever had happen in a case in terms of somebody thinking, "Oh yeah, I'll just I'll, I'll Instagram from here to let the world know where I'm at in the middle of the proceeding." And it bumps—that's tech, where technology suddenly bumps up against principles of law or yeah. procedure that that haven't been really accounted for. So
1: that's super interesting. Lewis Hamilton got in trouble, not in the court of law, but he got in trouble. Um at the uh, one of the Grand Prix recently because he started Snapchatting. Do you remember, Did you see that? Oh yes. he took photos yeah. took exposed and there were drivers and put Snapchats on there. But I think it's a really good point because that could be, particularly when athletes who are involved, who may not be okay with with um, these type of procedures. Well, imagine if somebody
0: periscoped an entire proceeding. Yeah. Um, it, it undermines sort of the, the confidentiality of the proceedings that the parties have both banked on for being there. So could be a good whistleblowing
1: tool though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I i not leave it there. Thanks, Jeff, for time. Thank you.
0: Sadly, that's all we have time for for this show. I hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, for all your latest sports law updates and information, you can go to lawandsport.com or follow us on Twitter, at Law & Sport. Go to our YouTube channel, follow us on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also go to our website to sign up for our weekly email. Thanks again for tuning in.